Hello, I'm Rob, and welcome to Black Country Talking News. This week's edition is for the 12th of July, 2023. Hello and welcome to the Black Country Talking News, brought to you by the sight loss charity Beacons. We're pleased to confirm that the Talking News is now available via Alexa. Once you've enabled the Talking Newspapers skill, all you need to do is play Talking Newspapers and ask for the Black Country Talking News. Our Talking News service is also available via the free Wireless for the Blind app. It can be found on the Beacon Centre website www.beaconvision.org forward slash talking dash news. As a podcast via services such as Apple or Spotify or as a free CD, simply contact Beacon Centre on 01902 We hope you enjoy this week's edition. Reading this week, we have myself, Rob, Christine, Angela, Liz, Helen, Pete, Mina, Simon, and of course not forgetting, Flashback Roger. In this week's edition we have Local News of the Black Country, an update from Beacon, information about fit-over filter glasses, the quiz with Mina, a special edition of this week's Sports News, a Did You Know section from Flashback Roger. The weather for the week ahead. Local news to start though, with Liz, Christine, but first, we hear Angela. Books of condolence have been opened to allow people to pay their respects to the leader of Wolverhampton Council who died following a battle with cancer. Councillor Ian Brookfield, who was diagnosed with cancer earlier this year, died last week surrounded by his loved ones. The leader of Wolverhampton Council will be remembered as a titan of local government who led the city through the pandemic and worked across political boundaries for the good of residents. Born and bred in Liverpool, Councillor Brookfield developed a deep love of Wolverhampton and its people, having moved to the city more than 35 years ago. He often spoke of the great privilege of becoming council leader and once described his journey to get there as a learning curve in life and politics. In an interview in 2019, he told the Express and Star that one of his earliest memories was being taken by his father George, a long-distance lorry driver and a shop steward in the old Transport and General Workers' Union, to see Prime Minister and Houghton MP Harold Wilson speak at the pierhead. Thousands of people turned up. It was the start of my basic education in politics, Mr Brookfield recalled. He moved to Wolverhampton through his job as a nurse working in prisons and it was while he was at home in Low Hill one evening in 1990 that his political destiny started to take shape. The late councillor Pete Bilson, who would become his great friend and colleague, knocked on the door and asked him to put up a Labour poster. He did just that and within time he had joined the Labour Party and become an active campaigner before being elected as a councillor in Bushbury in 1995. After moving across to Oxley in 1999, he spent five years off the council before returning as a Fallings Park councillor. He later moved across to Bushbury South and Low Hill, where he served alongside his wife Paula. 
As well as serving 23 years on the council, he also worked as a Royal Mail postman based in Sun Street and was an elected official in the Communication Workers' Union. All my jobs had involved helping people, Councillor Brookfield once told the Star. It's who I am. Becoming a councillor did not seem like a strange step on from that. After serving as city mayor in 2015 to 16 and raising thousands for charity, he succeeded Roger Lawrence as council leader in 2019. Within months, he was tasked with guiding the city through the COVID pandemic. His was very much a hands-on approach, with Councillor Brookfield regularly taking part in the delivery of food parcels to those in need of support. The father of two was also a devoted family man, who once said in an interview, always make sure your family comes first. He was hugely ambitious for Wolverhampton, with his long-term plan for it to become an event city currently in motion. As leader, he was never afraid to work across political boundaries for the good of the city, successfully lobbying government ministers to bring in investment for a number of schemes. Colleagues considered him very much a people person, capable of making those around him feel relaxed with his easygoing demeanour and ready wit. He also forged a strong relationship with Conservative Mayor Andy Street on the West Midlands Combined Authority, on which he most recently served as the leader for economy and innovation. West Midlands Mayor Andy Street said it was with incredible sadness that we all learnt that Wolverhampton had lost its leader, Councillor Ian Brookfield. We travelled together to India, the Molyneux and to the most testing parts of Covid's impact on the West Midlands economy, with him never once letting our political differences get in the way of doing the right thing. That's because Ian was a born collaborator and natural pragmatist whose only thought was to always get the best for his citizens and his city. He was someone never afraid to work across the political divide to deliver the greatest benefit and as a result, everyone wanted to work with Ian. But never, ever would you mistake his collaboration for political naivety. Ian was as tough and as disarmingly shrewd as they come. On more than one occasion, I saw him ask the checkmate question to ministers, but always in his charming, self-deprecating scouse way. He was indeed a wise head around the combined authority board table, a modest leader and a brave colleague. His passing is a family's grief, Wolverhampton's loss and the region's setback. Our renewed effort at shared endeavour must be his legacy. Ian, thank you for your dedication, your friendship and, of course, the occasional bear hug. Throughout the many challenges he faced while leading the council, he always stayed true to his beliefs and treated those around him with a degree of fairness. It is a mark of his passion and dedication to the city that he continued to serve as leader even when battling serious illness. Speaking shortly after taking the helm in 2019, Councillor Brookfield told the star, The time will come when I will go, and hopefully people will be able to see that I have moved us in the direction I was hoping for. History will show that he certainly achieved that.
Up next, we hear from Helen, who of course has for us the Beacon Update. Hi everyone, it's Helen from Beacon. I'm back with our weekly update. And this week, I am starting with a new way to keep up to date with everything that's happening here at our charity. If you're on the new social media channel, Freds, you can now find us there. Just search for Beacon Vision and you'll be able to follow us. But if social media is not for you, though, don't worry. We've still got our weekly updates here. So on the subject of Beacon News, we are saying a very big thank you to everyone at the West Midlands Billiards and Snooker Association for their continued support of Beacon. Our supporter engagement manager, Sophie, was delighted to receive a cheque for £381 at their recent presentation evening, and it'll help us ensure that no one has to face sight loss alone. The association is a long-term supportive beacon, raising money for our charity for more than 20 years, and we so appreciate their support. And thank you is the theme of our week, I think, this week. So next up on the subject of that, you can say thank you to your child's teacher with a gift from Beacons made by FabLab Range that will keep on giving long after the school holidays finish as purchases support our work to ensure that no one faces sight loss alone. Shop now via our Etsy site and that's www.etsy.com forward slash shop forward slash made by FabLab to get your gift in time for the end of term. And would you believe it? It's actually been thank you day this week, this very week. So we've all got someone we want to say thank you to. And so on thank you day, we showed our appreciation to our incredible supporters. Over the past year, they've donated 430 hours of their time as event volunteers, completed an incredible combined total of 1,643,750 steps, wow, in our Colour Run and Santa Run, and collected more than 5,000 stamps on behalf of Beacon, plus much more than that, of course. So thank you for helping people to live well with sight loss. So it's only up this week that I finish with a thank you for listening. I'll be back again soon. Bye-bye. Cheers that update, Helen. Up now, we're our next block of local news. And starting this one off, we first hear Christine. Last week welcomed the 75th birthday of the NHS, with events around the country marking the anniversary. The NHS was born out of the ideal that healthcare should be available to all, regardless of wealth, and is largely credited to Anirin Bevin, who was Minister of Health in Clement Attlee's government. He was behind the National Health Service Act 1946, which was passed and launched in 1948, nationalising more than 2,500 hospitals within the United Kingdom. Since then, there have been a number of landmarks, including Britain's first kidney transplant in 1960 to Europe's first liver transplant in 1968. The world's first CT scan on a patient was performed in 1971, revolutionising the way doctors examine the body and the first test tube baby was born under the NHS in 1978. And for a grandmother born in Wolverhampton on the day the NHS was founded, there was a triple celebration last week, her birthday, the NHS's 75th anniversary and the end of her radiotherapy. Despite Health Minister Aniron Bevan, MP, officially opening the NHS on 5th of July, 1948, 
Christine Ely's mother still had to pay for the childbirth at Elspeth Nursing Home, Birches Barn Avenue, Bradmore. Christine has had a lifetime of free healthcare, giving birth to her own daughter and seeing her grandson born on the NHS and relying on it when emergencies and illnesses happened throughout their lives. Whereas her mother, Irene, was forced to scrimp and save for a hospital delivery and see her brother die of tuberculosis a few years before Clement Attlee's post-war government provided universal free health care in the teeth of fierce acrimony from the private medical profession. Widower Christine, who lives in Merrydale, kept her birth certificate and the bill her parents had to pay for her to be born. She said, Though the NHS was founded the day I was born, my parents still had to pay Elspeth Nursing Home for me to be born. The message must not have got to Wolverhampton when I was delivered. I was the last baby in the family to cost money. My brother was born in 1951 for free, as was my daughter 33 years ago, and my grandson too. She added, I think it was so sad that before the NHS, people could only get treatment if they were well-to-do, had savings or scrimped and saved to pay for medical bills. My mother's brother died of TB in the early 1940s, and we don't know what would have happened if the NHS was around for him. Christine needed the NHS again 13 years ago, when she had a brain tumour which had to be removed. Fortunately, it turned out to be benign. However, this year a secondary tumour appeared and she has had to have a six-week course of radiotherapy to remove it. Christine said, I was born on the day the NHS was founded and I wanted to say thank you for everything they have done for me. I have just had six weeks of radiotherapy and all the nurses and doctors were so lovely. I finished my course last week. It was for a secondary tumour but I do not have cancer. However, when Christine hears people criticise the NHS, she puts it down to people's own personal experiences of the huge organisation which now performs over 10 million operations a year and employs more than 1 million people. She said, With waiting lists being so long and so many people having things done, if someone has a bad personal experience, they will criticise the NHS. You have to be firm with the NHS. I badger them if I think there is something wrong or if I have an appointment in one hospital and know another department which I need to see is on the same site. I will ask for an appointment on the same day. We are lucky to have the NHS in this country, so there is no excuse not to use it when we need to. railway station ticket offices in the Black Country will close apart from Walsall and Wolverhampton under plans to modernise the way tickets are sold. Industry body, the Rail Delivery Group, RDG, unveiled proposals which could lead to nearly all offices in England being shut, with facilities only remaining open at the busiest stations. It said moving ticket office staff onto station platforms and concourses would modernise customer service. It comes as the rail industry is under pressure from the government to save money amid the drop in revenue caused by the coronavirus pandemic. West Midlands Railway and Avanti West Coast, which manage ticket offices at stations in Birmingham, Staffordshire and the Black Country, have both launched public consultations over the proposed changes. 
but there are already fears the move could lead to job losses and put some vulnerable passengers off train travel. The companies, alongside other train operators in England, say they are proposing to bring employees out from behind ticket office windows to be closer to customers as many passengers are choosing to book online or to use self-service ticket machines. Mobile teams would move between stations offering extra help where needed with staff being on hand on platforms and concourses to help with journey planning, finding the right ticket and supporting passengers with accessibility needs. Plans also include upgrading ticket vending machines, giving staff handheld devices and new customer help points. Ian McConnell, Managing Director of West Midlands Railway, said, We need to evolve with our customers, as well as creating a more sustainable railway that's fit for the future. Our proposals would mean staff being more visible and available where customers most need them, on concourses and platforms to help with journey planning, finding the right ticket and supporting passengers with accessibility needs. We understand that some customers have complex needs and some are less comfortable using digital technology. That's why we will be consulting widely with relevant groups and looking at ways of supporting all our customers to ensure that no one is left behind. The plan sparked fury from trade unions and disability groups, with concerns also raised by public transport organisations. Chris Theobald, Senior Campaigns Manager at Guide Dogs for the Blind, said staffed kiosks provide help with more than just buying tickets, especially to those who are visually impaired. He said ticket offices also helped with changing bookings and asking about space for guide dogs. If you're not confident that there's anyone there to assist you when these things go wrong, it's a real barrier. Mr Theobald added that self-service machines that are touchscreen are not accessible with sight loss. People can have their say on the plans to close ticket offices in the region by emailing ticketoffice.avanti at transportfocus.org.uk or ticketoffice.wmt at transportfocus.org.uk or by contacting Transport Focus by phone on 0300 123 2350 by the 26th of July. If extra assistance is required, the RNIB are also providing a template to help you describe how you would be affected by ticket offices closing. You can contact the RNIB on 0303 123 9999. Staff at the Tip in Bilston spent more than two hours painstakingly searching for a shoebox stuffed with about £900 in cash after a Wolverhampton woman had a clear out. Rhiannon Thompson feared the worst when her partner, Jordan Stevens, asked her where his red Nike shoebox with £900 inside had gone. She said, My heart just sank. I'd taken it to the tip two days earlier. It had about £900 of my boyfriend's Christmas money inside, but it had been tucked under some tissue paper in a money gift card, so I hadn't seen it. I'd taken the rubbish on the Saturday and only realised what had happened on the Monday when he asked me where his shoebox was. The worst thing was he was planning to take it to the bank that very day. We were waiting outside the tip gates on Monday morning but we had very little hope of ever getting it back. However, 
The Anchor Lane site staff leapt to the rescue, spending hours painstakingly picking through tons of cardboard rubbish and eventually returned most of the cash, bar around £80, as some of the money had come out of it, to the very grateful couple. Rhiannon, 23, added, We are so very grateful. It makes you realise there are some really lovely people in the world. I felt so bad. It was pouring with rain and they had all their work to do. They had been looking for around two hours and we were about to give up when they came across it. It was such a relief. The rescue mission proved to be very complex as the cardboard was piled high and had already been crushed several times over the space of two days. Site manager Dave Phillips said returning the money to the young couple was one of the most rewarding days at work he had ever had. He added, We get car keys thrown in regularly. We've got a special hook that we use when that happens. We've also had wedding rings before, but never anything like this. It's part of our job. We want to help and they were a young couple and it's a lot of money. We were very glad to have helped them out. Now it's time to test your knowledge as we have the quiz questions for the decision. And they're brought to us by Mina. Hello and welcome to this week's flashback quiz. All the answers you need can be found later in Flashback Rogers' Did You Know feature. But for now, these are your questions. Here we go. Question 1. What size shoes does the Statue of Liberty need? Question 2. In what year was a cross first used as a kiss in a letter? Question 3. What was the WW2 slogan used as propaganda? Question 4. What secret is hidden in the Eiffel Tower? Question 5. What gave duffel coats and bags their name? And finally, question six. How old was the bronze pot discovered in China in 2019? I will be back with you later in the show to answer the questions. But for now, best of luck. Just those questions, Mina. I'll get my mind working on those. Up now, however, it's another block of local news. A fisherman doing some nighttime angling at a Shropshire beauty spot says he was woken in his tent by a black cat the size of a Labrador. Chris Abbott, 48, from Wombourne, was fishing on the River Severn in Hampton Lode last weekend when in the middle of the night his fishing alarm went off. Mr Abbott, a councillor and former TA soldier, said, I was camped near the Unicorn Inn at Hampton Lode on Sunday night. I had my rods in the water all night and I woke to the sound of my fishing alarm. When I left the tent to look down the steep bank, I heard rustling in the bushes. He said despite going out to investigate, he didn't see anything so returned to his sleeping bag. But an hour later, he went back out to reset his fishing rods, only for a large black cat to break cover and dash past him. It was about 3.30 a.m., 
I was two feet away from it and it darted from a mud bank past me. I was in shock at the sight. The beast was the size of a Labrador. I was pretty stunned, I don't mind telling you. The next morning, my girlfriend found what we thought was some paw prints in the mud. Mr. Abbott, who intends to return to the fishing spot to see if he can get a picture of the mysterious beast next week, said he was certain it wasn't a domestic cat. I've a cat myself, so it definitely wasn't a domestic cat, he said. You hear of these things being seen in Dartmoor and other places, but this is the first time I've ever seen something like this. I'm glad I didn't panic too much, and I'm now wondering if there have been further sightings. Have you ever come across the beast of Hampton Lode? After a campaign was launched by Marco Longhi MP and West Midlands Mayor Andy Street to bring Dudley Town Football Club back to the town after years playing away, the Mayor of Dudley, Councillor Andrea Goddard, has congratulated the Robins after the club won its first title for 38 years. Dudley Council leader Patrick Harley also revealed the council was preparing to enter talks with the West Midlands Combined Authority over securing a slice of legacy funding from the Commonwealth Games to kick-start the project to bring Dudley Town FC home. Mr Harley told the Express and Star, we would love to bring the club back to the town and a potential site has now been identified, which myself and Marco have been to see. Things are moving forward and we are hoping to speak with the club shortly and start some feasibility work on the site. Although it's early days, these are exciting times and the site itself looks very promising. I'll then be speaking to the combined authority to see if we can tap into the legacy funding from the Commonwealth Games to really get things moving. Details of the site are yet to be revealed, although the Express and Star understands land near the Old Mons Hill School has been under consideration, as has a site at Burton Road. The 135-year-old club's last permanent home in the town was the Sports Centre ground, which was shut down in the mid-1980s and is now Castlegate Park. Decades of ground sharing have followed, with just one permanent home in the borough since, Round Oak Stadium in Briley Hill. Since 2017, home games have taken place at the GW Arena in Willenhall, home of Sporting Calsa. Dudley Council's Labour Group has also launched a campaign of its own. St Thomas's Ward Councillor Shalkat Ali, who describes himself as a staunch supporter of the club, has raised a motion at next week's full council meeting titled Bring Dudley Town Football Club Back Home. As well as backing a new ground for the club, the motion also calls for formal celebration of their recent promotion and the establishment of a cross-party working group to develop an ambitious sports strategy in Dudley. Councillor Ali said he had been in contact with the club over a potential site near the town centre. I firmly believe this site would make an excellent home ground, he said. With the full backing of the Labour Group, I am ready to collaborate with the club to turn their dream into reality. I hope that every member of the council will support this motion. The return of the club to its home ground would not only inspire the local community and our future generations, but also contribute to the growth and development of sport throughout Dudley. The club has backed Mr Longy's campaign with director Stephen Austin telling the star a return to Dudley would be great for the club and great for the people of the town. 
a local sporting event that inspired the modern Olympic Games has taken place over the weekend. The Much Wenlock Olympian Games started in 1850 as the brainchild of Dr. William Penny Brooks. It is thought to have provided the inspiration for the modern Olympics after Baron Pierre de Coubertin, the founder of the International Olympic Committee, visited the Games in 1890, six years before the first Olympic Games. This year marks the 100th year anniversary of when a much Wenlock champion then went on to compete at the actual Olympic Games. Jonathan Edwards, CBE, president of the Much Wenlock Olympian Society, former Olympic triple jumping gold medalist and current world record holder, explained the significance. He said 2023 is a special anniversary for the Much Wenlock Olympian Games because it marks 100 years since Harold Langley of Spark Hill Harriers in Birmingham won the gold medal in the pentathlon. He added that Langley went on to compete in the triple jump at the Paris Olympics a year later in 1924 and his achievement is being commemorated with a special medal this year. Over the weekend of July 1st and 2nd, the climax of 137th Much Wenlock Olympian Games took place. It was the culmination of the two-week games that saw a host of competitions in sports such as golf and horse riding. On Sunday, 13 track and field events took place, including athletics, fencing, archery and a seven-mile road race, with most events taking place at William Brooks School in the town. Almost 300 competitors entered the athletics events with over 80 entrants for the race. The Wenlock Olympiad Vice President, Mrs. Helen Cromarty, presented five trophies and 32 medals, 15 gold, 9 silver and 8 bronze. A spokesperson for the Much Wenlock Olympian Games said, The day saw some great competition with best games performances being equaled. Athletes from as far away as Northumberland competed in a wide range of athletics events on a cool and breezy day. More local news to follow. But now Pete's got an idea which may help with the visual discomfort some people get from bright lights and glare. If you need help with sight loss, then filter glasses might help you. Filter glasses are a range of glasses specially for sight loss, designed to protect your eyes from harmful UV rays and reduce glare and bright light, and also improve contrast as well. They make things clearer to see and your eyes more comfortable. They can either be worn on their own, or you can wear them over your existing prescription glasses. Wearing a sun hat or a baseball cap or a sun visor can also help too. So if you'd like to try the range of Cocoon filter glasses and find the right lens and frame to make life a bit more comfortable for you, then call Beacon Sight Loss Advisors for an appointment. You can call on 01902 880 111 and ask for a sight loss advisor. Coming up next on this week's edition of the Black Country Talking News, we have another block of local news.
A postcard sent on the world's first official airmail flight is due to land at auction in Staffordshire. Dating back to 1911, the postcard featuring a panoramic view of Dijon took to the skies in what was also the first ever flight in India. Addressed to an A.E.S. Sobal Esquire in Perulia, West Bengal, the sender apparently anticipated the postcard's future value, writing on the back, Please keep this for my collection. On February 18, 1911, French pilot Henri Pequet flew approximately 6,000 items of mail five miles from Alabad to Naini on a Humber summer biplane. A few decades previously, mail had been carried by hot air balloons, but Peke's 13-minute journey proved the possibilities of aerial mail by plane and paved the way for the world's first regular airmail service in the UK that September, tying in with the coronation of King George V. Uncovered as part of a family collection during a valuation at the Litchfield Auction Centre, the postcard carried by Peke's plane is estimated to make £200-£300. It goes under the hammer with Richard Winterton auctioneers at the Tamworth Auction Rooms on Wednesday, July 26th, starting at 9.30am. In 1903, the Wright brothers famously made the first powered flight and so air travel was born, said philately specialist Phil Ives. Early pioneers and promoters attempted to commercialise this travel revolution by arranging air shows. One such air show was arranged by Walter Wyndham in Allahabad, northern India in February 1911. The show was organised in response to a plea to Wyndham for help in raising funds for a church mission. Wyndham conceived the notion that if official sanction could be granted for a postal delivery that incorporated a section of the journey covered by air, then a premium could be paid for the privilege, the premium being a donation to the church mission. The main event of the show was the flight made by Henri Pequet and as such was the first flight by powered plane in India. The flight was a success and so airmail services were born. Each item of mail on the flight was hand-stamped with a special cachet, a decorative franc, designed by Wyndham and featuring the outline of an aeroplane. Usually in magenta, as is this example, but occasionally also found in black, the cachet is dated 1911 and reads 1st Aerial Post UP Exhibition Alabad. A few months on from the Indian flight, Wyndham was the architect of a regular airmail service in the UK between Hendon in London and Windsor, Berkshire, starting on September the 9th as part of the coronation celebrations for King George V. Airmail covers are attractive to collectors and Indian stamps and postal history are popular, so we expect a lot of interest when it is offered as part of a family collection in our next stamp sale on July the 26th, added Mr Ives. A community has accused the Royal Mail of not caring after the mystery removal of a post box. Residents of Kendalwood Road, Kidderminster, have been calling for the post box to be reinstated after it was taken down by Royal Mail without consultation. Homeowners and councillors have joined together to ask the postal company for the missing post box to be returned, arguing that it's too far to walk to the next available drop-off point. Kenneth Pope, 78, who used the post box, said, I just wish they had asked us before they had taken it. 
If it was damaged, then why wasn't it just simply replaced? We live in an area where the only other option is at the top of a hill or across a main road. You honestly think someone would have asked us, but they haven't. They haven't talked to us about replacing the box at all. Ofcom, the regulatory body that moderates where post boxes are placed, demands that 98% of houses should be within half a mile of an accessible post box. A Royal Mail spokesperson said, When a post box is removed, for example, when the landowner asks us to or if one is damaged, we review the provision in the area. It has been advised there is a post box on Walker Drive, which is approximately 300 metres away, and another post box on Stourbridge Road, which is approximately 450 metres away. Having taken into account all relevant factors, including the number of post boxes in the area, within half a mile, and the balance of economy against service provisions, we are unable to install a replacement postbox as requested. Councillor Mary Rayner of Broadwaters Ward said that Royal Mail hasn't taken into account the topography of the ground and is ignoring the requirements of the residents. She added, we are trying to get the postbox back for the residents. It is unacceptable. There is one resident who can only get around on a scooter now, it is too dangerous for her to cross a major road or go up a hill. One lady is 94 years old. She can't walk and she can't drive. They haven't taken into account the topography of the ground. Councillor Rayner is appealing to Ofcom to take over the matter, saying that the residents' needs are being ignored. She added, I'm going to take this to Ofcom and see what they have to say. It's fine if you have 400 metres to walk on a flat road, but that length on a hill, a lot of these residents can't manage that. If you have disabled or elderly residents, I think conditions should be met. It's discriminating to their needs. It needs to be fixed. Post boxes are an everyday part of the street scene, but how much do we know about them? How long have post boxes been a part of our lives? And who came up with the idea? Did you know that there are nearly 200 styles currently in use? Here's TNF Soundings contributor Amanda who can. Let us know more. Hello, this is Amanda with an article written by Tina. Here at the Talking Newspaper, we're used to remind you to pop your return wallet into a post box. Well, this has led me to seek out the history of those oh-so-useful post boxes. A little over 20 years ago, a Royal Mail post box was located within half a mile of over 98% of the UK population. So just how many post boxes are there? I will leave you to think about that for now, answering the question at the end of this piece. The first use of pillar boxes, as they were originally called, was in St Helier in the Channel Islands, A notice to the public in the Jersey Times of November 1852 said from November 23rd in four locations correspondence would be cleared daily, except Sundays, at 6am and noon. The public were reassured that letters deposited in these boxes would be treated in the same manner as if posted at a receiving post office. Back in 1840, The introduction of the penny post opened up the postal system to much of the population, yet letters generally still needed to be taken to the nearest receiving office. 
The advent of prepayment stamps led to a growing demand for convenient places to deposit a letter. It was the novelist Anthony Trollope, a GPO official, who was tasked with providing a solution. He adopted the continental system of roadside cast-iron pillar boxes with regular collections in Jersey in 1852 and then extended the system to the mainland in 1853. By 1900, over 33,500 post boxes existed throughout the British Empire. Since their Victorian beginnings, boxes have usually carried the insignia or cipher of the monarch reigning at the time. More than 60% of current post boxes carry the ER2 mark of the late Queen or a Scottish crown. About 15% originate from the reign of George V. A smaller number remain carrying the insignia of Queen Victoria, George VI, Edward VII, and there are even some with the cipher of Edward VIII, who abdicated in 1936 before he was formally crowned. Early post boxes varied in size and style. Some of the originals were hexagonal in shape. From 1857, a wall box type style was developed to fix to existing walls. In 1859, an improved cylindrical design of pillar box was created for standard use nationwide. This design had its posting aperture positioned beneath a cap for greater protection from rainwater. Further new designs soon followed, so in 1866 the post office asked J.W. Penfold to create a standard design. This was the popular and elegant hexagonal Penfold box with the design of acanthus leaves. It is thought that only about 20 original Penfold boxes still exist, with eight of these in just one town in Cheltenham. The standard design was updated again in 1879, and the style continued to evolve, with rectangular boxes appearing in 1968 and 1974, whilst a distinctly modern cylindrical version has been in use from 1980. Altogether, there are around 200 styles of letterbox in use today. So when you next pop your mail into your postbox, you might wish to examine it by touch to determine which category it fits into. In 1972, the government recognised the need to preserve some rare early pillar boxes. Historic England lists postboxes within their street furniture on the National Heritage List for England. The factors determining heritage credentials are age, rarity and historic or townscape value, and many local authorities list postboxes as buildings of local interest. All Royal Mail postboxes are painted in standard red and black. Only for genuine historical reasons are other colours permitted, such as bronze green for some early boxes, light blue for some airmail boxes, and the 110 boxes painted gold in celebration of the London 2012 British Olympic and Paralympic champions. And as to how many there are in the UK currently... There are 115,500 today, with over 85,000 in England, according to Royal Mail. TNF Soundings. Up now, it's trivia time, brought to us by Flashback Roger and his Did You Know feature. 
Hello again everyone. Well here we go with another one of my Did You Know Spots. Every week I think that I'm going to struggle to discover these snippets, but there are so many that it's sometimes hard to choose. But choose I did. So here you are then with this lot. Now so did you know that? I'm sure that like me you've heard of plus size clothes, but this is crazy. It's no secret that the Statue of Liberty is a mighty monument, as the copper section alone is 151 feet and 1 inch tall. But if Lady Liberty ever needed a new pair of sandals, it would take size 879 shoes to cover her massive feet. And if you're a romantic like me, and sign letters or more likely text and emails to those you love with an X, then you're keeping up a sweet tradition that goes back hundreds of years. The Oxford English Dictionary says that an X was first used to represent a kiss back in 1763 in a letter written by British naturalist Gilbert White. The popular Keep Calm and Carry On slogan was originally created by the British government as a form of propaganda to urge citizens to stay civil during World War II. Years later, a poster was discovered, and many companies have used it as a slogan for a marketing theme for their products. And did you know that when Gustave Eiffel designed the tower which bears his name in Paris, he added a hidden apartment on the third level of the landmark, but he never lived there. In fact, no one did. Instead, Eiffel used it to entertain his guests. And here's another mystery solved for me, because the duffel bag and duffel coat both get their names from the town of Duffel in Belgium, where the cloth used in the bags was originally sold. The fabric was a coarse, thick woolen cloth that was originally used for sturdy covering on ships. It's been suggested that originally the bags were made out of scraps for sailors and explorers on their way out to sea. And finally this week, in March 2019, archaeologists in China reportedly found a 2,000-year-old bronze pot that contained 3.5 litres of liquid that was referred to as an elixir of immortality. However, considering the fact that this elixir of life was discovered in a tomb, I think it's fair to say that it was about as useful as a chocolate teapot. Well, quite a mixture of topics this week, weren't there? Some unusual ones too that had me intrigued in the past. In road up, I'm off. I'll go and have a Twix this week and dunk my tea bag in my old enamel mug and dig out some more bits and pieces for us. But for now, I'll just say keep safe and keep well. Ta-ra a bit. Ta-ra! Up now, we had to hit what the web has in store for us. Brought to us as always by Mina. The weather for this week ahead is forecast to be rather unsettled with some sunny spells but plenty of showers too. Temperatures are also forecast to be a little cooler with highs around 18 degrees. With continued cloud and showers expected, UV levels are set to remain at medium. The sunrise and sunset times are 5pm for the sunrise and 9.25pm for the sunset. Friday 14th of July is set to be rather wet and breezy. With light rain forecast for most of the day, temperatures are expected to reach around 18 degrees, although with a moderate breeze it may feel a little cooler than this. 
The spell of rain looks set to remain with us throughout the weekend as well, with both Saturday and Sunday offering a mix of sun and showers, with a moderate breeze and some sunny spells about. Temperatures over the weekend will continue to hover around 18 degrees. On to next week and the unsettled weather will continue to dominate with plenty of sharp showers. It is forecast for rain to remain in the region from Monday 17th of July and continue right through to Thursday 20th of July. With the breeze easing off as we go through the week, we may see temperatures increase a little in places, possibly hitting 20 degrees. The showers are forecast to be persistent all week, but should ease off at times, with a chance of some sunny intervals breaking through. All in all, it looks like we'll be dodging the showers again for another week. So, that's your forecast for this week. As always, enjoy the weather. Thanks for that weather update, Mina. Although the forecast for Saturday, since Swithin's Day, seems a bit worrisome. Does his day really affect the weather for the next 40 days? Should we now expect 40 days of rain during July and August? TNF Soundings contributor Alastair looks at the history of St Swithin and the legends that have grown up around him. TNF Soundings. Features from across the UK. This is St. Swithin and His Day, written and read by Alastair Hutton. A look at the calendar of saints will find it packed with a great many names, a large number of which you may never have heard of, but a few are familiar, even if you couldn't explain precisely the significance of their day. Fairly high among those is St. Swithin, and the odd legend that whatever the weather on St. Swithin's Day, it will continue like that for another 40 days and 40 nights. If you've forgotten, St. Swithin's Day falls on the 15th of July every year, and the legend is summed up in the rhyme, St. Swithin's Day, if it does rain, full 40 days it will remain. St. Swithin's Day, if it be fair, for 40 days twill rain no more. Of course, the rhyme and the legend are hardly likely to be a reliable forecast, but the curious among you might wonder how the idea arose in the first place. St. Swithin was an Anglo-Saxon bishop at Winchester Cathedral in the 9th century, but he didn't merit much mention in the records of the time. He was known for his charity, and that was enough for him to be made patron saint of Winchester Cathedral a century after his death in 862. He was only credited with one miracle, making the home making whole again, and old lady's eggs after they were broken by workmen engaged in building a church. As he lay on his deathbed, St. Swithin asked to be buried outside the old minster in Winchester in a modest grave where his body would be trodden on and rained on. A legend grew up that St. Swithin's bones had miraculous healing properties, and on the 15th of July, 971, the monks of Winchester moved his remains to an elaborate shrine inside the cathedral where pilgrims could be more comfortable. But legend has it that St. Swithin wasn't happy about his body being moved, and on the day of the removal, ferocious and violent rainstorms beat on the cathedral for 40 days and nights, which was interpreted as his displeasure at the move. 
The original memorial was destroyed in King Henry VIII's break with the Roman Catholic Church, but the legend was strong enough for a new memorial to St. Swithin to be built inside Winchester Cathedral. Of course, the truth of it's all a bit vague. There's no record of 40 dry or 40 wet days following St. Swithin's Day since records began in 1861. However, the weather in the UK often settles into a pattern around mid-July for the next six weeks or so. That's governed by the jet stream. If it lies north of the United Kingdom throughout the summer, continental high pressure is able to move in, bringing warm sunshine. But if it flows further south, Arctic air and Atlantic weather systems are likely to predominate, bringing us colder and wetter weather. Such superstitions about the weather are not confined to Winchester in France. People keep watch for rain on St. Gervais' Day, July the 19th, and in Germany, July the 7th is Seven Sleepers' Day, which refers to the weather patterns over the next seven weeks. So, what will the weather be after St. Swithin's Day this year? Legendary? TNS Soundings Have you done any good at the quiz this week? Well, now's the time to find out, as we have the quiz answers. Hello, and here are your answers for this week's flashback quiz. How would you score? Let's see. Question 1. What size shoes does the Statue of Liberty need? And the answer? Size 879. Question 2. In what year was a cross first used as a kiss in a letter? And the answer here is 1763. Question 3. What was the WW2 slogan used as propaganda? And the answer here is keep calm and carry on. Question 4. What secret is hidden in the Eiffel Tower? And the answer here is a hidden apartment. Question 5. What gave duffel coats and bags their name? And the answer, the Belgian town of Duffel. Question 6. How old was the bronze pot discovered in China in 2019? And the answer here is 200 years old. Did you get them all right? If not, not to worry, as I will be back next week to test you all once again. Bye for now. Up now, with a special edition of this week's sports feature. TNF Soundings. Features from across the UK. Hi. Amanda here. In this particular piece, I've been taking a look at the International Blind Sports Federation. In the decades before the International Blind Sports Federation was officially established, there was a growing push towards promoting sports for people with impairments more generally. This began in Great Britain in 1948 with the Stoke Mandeville Games for injured servicemen and women with physical impairments from the Second World War, founded by Sir Ludwig Gutmann. And in 1952, the event became the International Stoke Mandeville Games. The Games continued to grow in popularity and attracted more countries and athletes as the years passed. 
The International Stoke Mandeville Games later became the Paralympic Games, which first took place in Rome, Italy in 1960, featuring 400 athletes from 23 countries. In 1964, recognising that there were many more people with visual impairments, amputations, cerebral palsy and other disabilities who wanted to compete in sports, the International Sports Organisation for the Disabled was founded. The ISOD became a growing force and pushed hard for the inclusion of blind athletes into the Toronto 1976 Paralympics. Goalball became the first sport for people with visual impairments on the Paralympic programme. While the ISOD aimed to embrace all physical impairments, other organisations began to emerge. The International Blind Sports Association was founded in 1981 and its first meeting was held at the UNESCO headquarters in Paris, France and was attended by 30 countries. The IBSA's status as a legal entity was then formalised in 1985 with the adoption of its first constitution during the General Assembly held in Hurdal, Norway. The association changed its name to Federation between 2002 and 2003. The acronym of the IBSA was retained. Today, the IBSA is the world's leading organisation for the development of sports for blind people and those with visual impairments, and it has more than 100 members in every region of the world. It champions inclusivity and provides a platform for blind and visually impaired athletes to showcase their skills and athleticism. Its mission is to empower them to experience quality, life-changing opportunities and to foster social integration through sports, to break down social and cultural barriers and to provide a supportive environment for individuals to thrive. The Federation serves as the umbrella organisation for a wide range of blind sports disciplines – powerlifting, 10-pin bowling, 9-pin bowling, ball, and showdown – including three Paralympic sports – blind football, goalball and judo. By organising world championships, regional competitions and other sporting events – the IBSA provides a platform for blind and visually impaired athletes to compete at the highest levels and showcase their extraordinary abilities. And the IBSA promotes blind sports globally, actively advocating for accessibility and equal treatment for blind and visually impaired athletes on the international stage. Competitions are held within five regions – Africa, America, Asia, Europe and Oceania – for the sport of goalball, competitively Asia and Oceania are drawn together as Asia-Pacific region. Indeed, the Federation collaborates with international sports organisations, governments and stakeholders, and these include the World Blind Union, UEFA for the development of blind football in Europe, the International Judo Federation and ONCE, one of the world's leading national advocacy groups for people with visual impairments. In striving to eliminate discrimination and remove the barriers to competing on an equal footing with sighted athletes and to ensure that there is full engagement in sports without compromising abilities or safety, the IBSA advocates for adaptive technologies such as goalball courts with tactile lines or audio-based cues for track events. The IBSA also plays a crucial role within the Paralympic movement. 
It works closely with the International Paralympic Committee to ensure that blind and visually impaired athletes are represented and given due recognition in the Paralympic Games. Indeed, blind sports such as goalball have become a highlight of the Paralympic Games, demonstrating the incredible skills and determination of the athletes. In short, the IBSA is committed to enhancing the competitive landscape for blind and visually impaired athletes, to promoting their sports globally and to increasing participation by organising more tournaments, investing in athlete development programmes and strengthening collaborations with international sports bodies. The IBSA's showcase event is the IBSA World Championships and Games, held every four years. In May 2015, the fifth IBSA World Championships and Games was held in Seoul, South Korea, and included competitions in powerlifting, judo, goalball, football, chess, tenpin bowling, tandem cycling, swimming, showdown, and athletics. This year, the city of Birmingham has been selected to host the Games. This decision by the International Blind Sport Federation was reached as a result of a combined bid between British Blind Sport, UK Sport, Birmingham City Council, the University of Birmingham and Sport Birmingham. The Games are due to take place from the 18th to the 27th of August of this year and will be held at the University of Birmingham across the Edgbaston area and wider region. They represent the largest high-level international event for athletes with visual impairments, with more than 1,000 competitors from more than 70 nations. TNF Soundings. So that's it for another edition of the Black Country Talking News. A reminder to our CD listeners who have received CDs in padded envelopes that you don't need to send anything back to us. If you have a sight loss tip or someone you would like to wish happy birthday to, just say hello to. Maybe even a poem or talking book you would like reviewed, then please get in touch with us at the Beacon Centre. Call 01902 880 Email bctn at beaconvision.org or write to us at the Black Country Talking News, Beacon, Wolverhampton Road East, Wolverhampton, WV46AZ. We look forward to hearing from you. Thank you for listening and thank you to all our supporters, donators and volunteers who without their support will be unable to run this free service. Please note the information and views expressed in this recording does not necessarily represent the views of Beacon or Talking News and were accurate at the time of recording. Mentions of goods and services does not imply endorsement and whilst every care is taken to supply accurate information, Beacon and Talking News do not undertake liability for any errors. So it's goodbye from all of us, stay safe, have a good week and we look forward to bringing you next week's edition of the Black Country Talking News. Ta-ra!